0: What does motion sound like? With Kizik Han's free shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Welcome everybody to this third edition of Macklin's Take. And you find it in the Moxie hotel in Stratford, East London. And hosted by myself Andy Clark and with Matt Macklin alongside me as always and our special guest this week is Mr Andy Lee. Andy great to have you on board. Thanks for having me. And the reason we're in the Moxie Hotel is because this is the morning after the night before. Last night we were all at the Copper Box for the Matchroom Bill broadcast on Sky. We're all on Sky Duty. That was of course headlined by Charlie Edwards against Angel Moreno. Good win, good defence for Charlie Edwards. Josh Bruazzi picking up that vacant British light heavyweight title stopping Liam Conroy Lawrence Coley retained his British title at Cruiserweight and regained the Commonwealth title with the stoppage of Wadi Camacho, professional deputy for Shannon Courtney, and the first fight at Super Lightweight for Lewis Ritson. So there was plenty going on. We're in Matt Macklin's room at the moment, and it's uh, about half past nine on a Sunday morning. So this is the glamour. This is the glamour of Macklin's take brought to you right here. And I, t- I tell you, this would have been. Uh,
1: no expense spared.
0: No expense spared, and this would have been. This would have been an extremely difficult mission to get us all together in a room at half past nine on a Sunday morning after a fight night there a, a, a few years gone by. But uh, our bodies are temples these days. Well, you're, in the case of you two, your bodies at, at, at times were temples because obviously you're professional athletes. I so don't think mine ever, ever qualified as, as being that exactly. To go back to last night, just quickly,
2: who impressed you most, Andy, would you say? Um, I know... Well, you're impressed by different things. I think I was really impressed by Charlie Edwards and uh, just the assured, kind of mature performance he put on, and and I still think there's a little bit more to come from him. Um, but he kind of cemented himself now as a world-class fighter uh, in in his weight division. And uh, Watsi was impressive. Yeah, Shannon Courtney was impressive for her first fight, even though like um, for a boxer who hasn't got a wealth of experience. So she she's shaping up well. Coley got a good finish I wasn't that impressed with it I still think he's a, he's got a work he's a work in progress but overall it was a good Jason Quigley boxed well although he wasn't in with much um, you could see his class and you know we were saying once he, he needs to get active now and
1: and, and and show that he can compete at a higher level but it was a good night wasn't it? Yeah I enjoyed it like you said Sh- Shannon Courtney really impressed me I was a uh, I was a bit shocked really how, how good she was for someone on her debut and the nerves and everything. But she was uh she held herself well, she had good composure, she kept her balance, uh good jab, uh good good variety as well, was going head and body. I was I was really surprised by that. I didn't uh, expect her to be as good as that. Uh but see didn't surprise me. I mean I was impressed again, but he's he's always impressive. Um I thought he looked quite vicious last night, you know, he wanted to get the job when even when Conroy, they were coming together and he was trying to clinch him. I liked the way he was using his arms, pushing him off, wasn't letting him get a hold of him. And um, and Charlie had just boxed really, really well. I mean, he's a, he's a very fit fighter, Charlie, to keep that. I know the smaller guys tend to be able to go at a good pace. But even so, he does not stay still for 12 rounds. You, know, <laughs> you get dizzy nearly chasing him around the ring. You see him on the track. Like, it was, like you know, f- for a while there,
2: I was kind of like the fittest in the gym. And... This was before Ryan turned up, and then, Char- like, so Ryan turned up, and then I was like, oh, so, you know, I was trying to stick with him the first couple of sessions, and I was like,
1: ah, especially the smallest, <laughs> it's guys not really. going to
2: happen, I feel like, Ryan just kept getting better and better and better, and I was like, oh, all right, I'll just resign myself now just to be, you know, to chase him around, and then Charlie comes out and blows us both out of the water, like, you know, it's like, him and Ryan going back to back to back,
1: and, like... Um, in terms of that, like the right. fitness, it's insane. Uh, I used to have that at Gallagher's. Like, I was kind of good, and then Crawler come along, couldn't couldn't catch him, and then Quig came along. Crawler <laughs> couldn't catch Quig. <laughs> well, the, the moral of the story is there's always somebody
2: out there who will get you, no matter how good you are.
0: Well, that's always the case, isn't it? There's always somebody coming up behind the Ryan you're referring to there, of course, Ryan Burnett uh, from your time training with, with Adam Booth. And uh, it's interesting that we're down in East London because. A lot of people won't know this, but this is kind of your your manner. This is your home turf, because you, you grew up just around the corner, just down the road in, in Bow. I know. Well, I kind
2: of had that, well, I had a nostalgia kind of a moment when, I, whatever, it was melancholy when I arrived here on Friday for the weigh-in and uh, getting in the taxi and kind of driving down the streets um, where... You know, I was a child running around and having like getting into trouble, and then like kind of seeing like just none of these buildings were here then, but I was here, you know. And it's mad like times change and people move on, and but in some way, you're the same person, but you're not, you know. It's that well, that was my existential little moment in the back of a taxi, (laughs) but uh, it's, it's 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 good to be back. Um, I don't know if I feel any connection to it anymore. There was definitely a time when I did when I was living in Ireland. Um, but I think, yeah, it's always going to be where I was was born, it's not really my home, but it was, uh, yeah, it's just, it's part of your history, that's it really, you know.
0: And so it would have been around here that you first pulled on the gloves for the first time? Yeah,
2: yeah, I started in the Repton boxing gym, and uh, even before that, just uh, my two older brothers boxed, uh, Ned and Tommy, Ned Ned was six years older than me, so they were, they were well, no, well, uh, further on than me in terms of their boxing, so when I was a kid, I was growing up watching them, and they would always put their gloves on me and show me how to shape up and that's why I was a southpaw. I'm really right-handed. I should have been an orthodox but Ned was a southpaw so he just showed me to box like him and that's that's so. Um, yeah, there's, there's a caravan site about a mile and a half down that way. It's called Bow Triangle and uh, you'd want to watch yourself walking down there like <laughs> you want to, you want to make sure you know somebody before you go down there because uh, it wouldn't be the most welcoming place but that's where I was born and grew up, yeah.
0: So how was that? Because you're from a travelling background, and and you said there that this is where you were born, but it's not where you're from. So is it slightly strange in a way? Do you feel slightly? Did you feel slightly kind of displaced, or is is that is that part of the culture almost?
2: Yeah, I don't know if you ever. I remember well. I had very fond memories growing up here, Um, and like I moved to Ireland when I was 14. So that's a very funny time because. Um, you're just getting to know yourself, you're getting a bit of independence. You have your mates and you're running around. And we're like, we'd be telling my mum I was going to the shop and I'd be on the tube to the other side of London, you know, and didn't it like just up to all sorts of stuff. And then I was taken away from that and brought to Ireland into like a rural kind of countryside uh setup. And that was like so, you always kind of wish, like, I wish I was back in London, I wish I was there. But then now looking back, and even after a few years, you realize that was probably the best thing that ever happened because. For for me in boxing and in life, I guess because it kind of quieted me down, and I got to focus on boxing. But like Ireland was always hard. I'm not sure it was like for you, Matthew. Uh, like we would spend all our summers, I know you did as well, in Ireland. And my parents' intention was always, even from young as I knew that they would always move back to Ireland. Mm-hmm. So, um, although I miss London, Ireland be- was or became my
1: home, my well, that's where I feel home anyway. Yeah. yeah, that was the same. Was we were back every summer holidays for the whole summer, and then. We nearly moved back in 90s. I, I nearly moved back in 96, went to, um, did an interview at St. Kieran's College in Kilkenny. And I was going to go there in the January and it would have been boarding school and then the family were going to move out the following in the summer. And then my mum was like, "Nah, you're not going to boarding school. <laughs> so I didn't go that year. So we went back, went back then for the summer again, then in 97. And we had an um, offer except on a plot of land into Prairie in Borsoli and then something I think there was some subsidence or something that, that they couldn't get planning on it and then it, that idea just kind of fell away really then I think I was kind of yeah, I was 15 going into like my last year doing GCSEs my sister was kind of stepping up to A level I think my dad got a different job then as well abroad it just, just didn't happen then when it didn't happen that year that was it then it was uh, we were stuck in Birmingham <laughs>
0: So you two could very possibly if things had worked out slightly differently have been on the same international amateur team as teammates
1: yeah, we boxed yeah. a few same people. I um, Darren Darren Sutherland got rest him. Yeah, I boxed him twice, and Andy I used to box him in yeah, well. yeah. yeah, yeah, it's funny that because, like you said, the, plot, the my that's how
2: my parents bought a plot of land, and that was it. You know, that was like the Irish dream, isn't it? Buy a plot of land, get some land, and go home, move home, like come to England, earn enough money, then go home, buy yourself a plot of land. Sounds like Darby O'Gill or something. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah. so that was it. You know? that was the truth.
0: But speaking of amateur careers um you had a very successful one. You picked up that silver medal in in the world juniors which 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 got you a lot of attention. I think that got you on on the the cronk radar on the manual steward's radar um then two thousand and three you you medaled at the Europeans, went to the world championships and and then Athens in two thousand and four and Matt, you turned pro about halfway through that cycle didn't you because that looked like it would be your ambition as well to go to the Olympics, and people fancied you to qualify and possibly do well. Yeah, if and when you qualified, but you took a you took a different yeah, a different I, path. Did you encounter each other much as amateurs? Well, I was a
1: couple of years older than Andy, and I, I, I turned my last my last amateur fight. I was actually eighteen, nearly nineteen, but I, was, I think I was actually eighteen. It was a couple of weeks later. I turned nineteen, um, so Andy would have been only probably still schoolboy at that time, probably sixteen. Um, yeah, I boxed um, in the World Junior Championships myself out in Budapest in 2000 and uh, badly robbed against the Hungarian there. Really sickened me. I was thinking, will I turn pro? Then um, I got picked to box for England senior. Not so my first ever senior bout was an international. Went to the Norway Box Cup. <coughs> lost there. Then came back from there. and went into the senior ABAs. Won those. Uh, damaged my left hand in the final. Missed out on the World Championships in Belfast, um, where Froch and Hay won medals, and then but I went and boxed in the Acropolis Cup, which was a month or six weeks after that. Won a silver medal there, lost in the final by a couple of points to the number one in the world, Andrei Balanov, Russian. And my whole plan then was, you know, whatever was coming to the Commonwealths for next, and I, and I, I had the Olympics firmly set in my mind. You know, it was three years away. Um, but then during that summer. Rob McCracken approached me, we were good, for, you know, he was from Birmingham and I knew him well, looked up to him a lot and he uh, called me up and said, look, you know, what, what are your plans? What are you doing? I said, well, you know, I'm boxing in the Tamar tournament in September and I've got America and then, the, and it's no, 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 he said, look, you know, how professionally, are you thinking of turning pro or, or, or what are you going on? Because what it is, he said, me and uh, Mick are doing this thing with Panas and uh, we're basically doing a, a deal with, the Mick's doing a deal with Panas and the BBC and." Rather than going after some big name professionals, they want to get some top amateurs because the BBC had covered the World Championships in Belfast that year and had done the ABAs. and um, you know the the standout guys were David Hay, Carl Fratch, and myself because because of my age as well, eighteen, and my style and Matthew Thurwell, uh, who was another good kid at that time from Fisher Boxing Club. He was was probably the four of us and. um, so they won. Hay, Hay wasn't going to turn over and Hay was going to do his own thing anyway because he was you know, his own man and he was very much with Adam Booth. But uh, So he, he went for me and Fratch really and um, I went down and met with Hennessy and I was thinking about it but I was thinking, I don't know, I, I want to I stay amateur a bit as well. I want to go to the Olympics. But then... Um, frank warren kind of come on the radar then through paddy lynch because i was training at paddy lynch's due and he was a bit messy and i didn't know who to listen to i felt like i was being pulled left pulled right emotionally you know robert was my hero and i, I felt like a bit of an emotional attachment there but then i still but then kind of it made set frank warren made more sense to me because i was watching him every saturday on the television and me and panace i wasn't so sure so i remember being really indecisive really confused at what to do and i just said you know what, i'm just going to stay uh amateur and then uh Frank called me up then about eight weeks later. I had a second meeting uh, up the ante, and things had settled down uh, in terms of i didn't feel as indecisive I was actually sleeping again and uh yeah, before I knew it, I was a boxing professional in eight weeks I had a debut and I hadn't even thought about where I was going to train, who was going to train me or anything like that really and you know I was eighteen didn't really want to move away from home and started training there i just I just kept training I've had a lynch's gym where I'd been training the last eighteen months or so as an amateur anyway so Different different journeys really, but yeah. It's um but I remember I remember Andy For I first heard Andy's name. I think your box would have been in a Four Nations or something. Uh and I remember you 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 beat someone I can't remember who you but you beat someone pretty good very convincingly. So and uh, and Kenny Egan. I remember Kenny Egan had a good win as well. And then I actually first met Andy, I think we would have been over in Liverpool at a Four Nations tournament. Do you remember that? I yeah. I was always professional
2: now. I remember, yeah, probably remember the uh, the tournament, yeah. At the Olympia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's when I actually boxed Craig McEwen in that one. Yeah, yeah. Was that there? Yeah. yeah. yeah, sure. yeah. But like, in our days, in, in, like, the amateur game back then was, I don't know if it was harder, but the, the structures in England and Ireland weren't as up to speed with the rest of the world as they are now, so... Like now we're kind of embarrassed by the medal. Like not embarrassed. like we're kind of in a comfort zone of like, you know, every year there's three or four at least like major medals, European or worlds. And even in the Olympics now. Like the the There wasn't many West, getting a Yeah, them that no, time. if you got a bronze medal in the European championships, that was a, like an eye open that was an eye opening result, even like then, you know, and it's like there were few and far between major medals, like and um whether it be that we weren't good enough, ordered like we weren't getting any decisions, whatever it might be. But like
1: things were different back then. So to win any medal, um, it was very hard to get a decision that time, um, you know, because all the Russian countries, the old Soviet countries were kind of coming together, weren't yeah, they? And
2: the, and the Turkish, like it was run by the European boxing, was run by Turk and Daganelli. And if you fought a Turk, you might just forget about it, like it was just you weren't winning. Hey, kid, hey, kids. Hey, everybody. Sitting here with a famous Slovenian philosopher. How are you doing, sir? I am uh, in hell, thank you. Are you uh, excited about something? I am excited about this latest uh, CIA funded venture. A CIA venture? Yes. It's called the Desire and Capital podcast. Oh, what is it about? <sighs> I refuse your fascist question. Well, there you have it. Listen to the Desiring Capital podcast coming soon to a bourgeois platform near you. On your marks, get set, go. This is so crazy! <laughs> I thought he did.
0: Well, it's it's amazing how the politics of that have have survived almost to this day. It's just accepted that in certain situations you're not going to get the nod, and it, it amazes me. I cover a lot of international amateur boxing at how stoically um, you took it then, and they they still have to take it now but to go back to when you turned professional um, obviously you went to Athens but it was that world junior championships that really kind of kick-started you wasn't it a couple of years beforehand you had some massive wins there I mean you've got some big names in that tournament Marc-Antonio Paraban you beat him you beat a rated USA fighter uh, Gonzalez his first name escapes me you beat Ismail Silak he was a pretty supersonic amateur and then you lost to the Cuban in the final and that's where Emmanuel Stewart got to to hear about you and then eventually you ended up at, at the Kronk so just fill us in how did all that happen?
2: Oh it's a long long story like anything in boxing you know it's hard to put the dots together um, but I'd beaten those guys I had five fights in, the, in in like six days I had one rest day and by the end of it I was I was like I, I couldn't even I don't know I was so exhausted in the, in the humidity and the heat in, in Cuba but anyway Manuel Stewart got wind of me and at the time See, Jesus Gonzalez was his fighter. Manuel sponsored him. He was the number one in America, senior, senior and junior. In you know, other way, the American system is quite different. And uh, so Emmanuel was sponsoring Jesus Gonzalez and then I beat him and he said, well, who beat Jesus? And he said, oh, I was this tall, skinny kid from Ireland. And when he won, the guy who was celebrating him had a crown shirt on and that was a guy called Tony Dunlop who was the Irish coach at the time. And Tony and his cousin, Damien McCann, um, Tony runs a Belfast yeah now doesn't yeah. he Trains they, were, they, Tennyson, were, they were talking to Emmanuel for a long time trying to get the the, the, the franchise of Kronk uh, or get their gym name Kronk really and uh, and Emmanuel well Emmanuel granted the idea and Emmanuel and Damien struck up this really good friendship relationship and then Emmanuel asked Damien about me and you know it wasn't long before Damien got in touch with me and um, spoke to Emmanuel and yeah it was it was uh, but that was in 2002 and I still waited like waited a while and i went to the olympics i kind of backed myself to go to the olympics and then uh i did that and then then uh turn pro yeah turn pro but even in between that there was a lot of back, like nothing's as so simple as that you know yourself and like you said about having mick hennessy and frank warren and this and that like after that you you get pulled left right and center and it's very very stressful and uh, as a young man you don't know who to trust or where to go or because once you make that decision, that's it. You like there's no going back. I know there is some rule where you can go back now if you've had yeah. less than four fights, but you know, no one's going back to the amateurs, and you wouldn't want to really. Yeah. but very indecisive time, isn't it? Because just, yeah. just like you said, you're so fearful of yeah. making the wrong move. Yeah, in some ways, like in a little bit of you, you're kind of kind of happy because you're getting like all this attention. You're getting it, like, oh, this guy wants me. This guy wants me, but. Oh, the overriding thing is stress, <laughs> like, yeah. like just not just racking your brain, walking around with your hands in your pockets, thinking like, what if this, like, play, playing out every scenario, which way it's going to go? I couldn't
1: sleep for, for like to the extent that then I said, you know what, I'm just going to stay amateur because at least I, I couldn't sleep. I actually, I didn't sleep.
2: Well, I actually did the same thing because at the time the sports council had offered me like something like they'd offered me something like 80 grand a year you know and a sponsored car and like education and all this and that's what i knew you know and i, I was very close with billy walsh the head coach and gary keegan in the high performance in ireland and uh and they had like they they were in my ear as well, and then I kind of just said, "Look, I'm going to stay amateur. This is a good life for I me." Mean, I just met my now wife at the time, you know, I met her in the in the August of that year, just after the Olympics. So, um, like I just kind of think, I'll just take this and have a, you know, this is it's only another four years and. I never really thought about being a pre- I was never a professional boxer in my style of boxing. I was a tall, skinny counter-puncher, and I moved a lot. So I, just, I was thinking, like, how am I going to fight professional? And then, uh, and then I agreed to stay amateur, and I fought in the senior championships, and I boxed in the six nations out of four nations again. And then I boxed against the Cuban. And then this was, like four or five months after saying yes and they still hadn't put together the contract or the, the agreement the sports council had in Ireland for me to you know stay amateur mm-hmm. to, to which to, what to get the funding or to get anything and I was like these guys just met like it's just too late. They, they missed fight. their chance and I just rang my manual again said, Look, can we resurrect this deal? And uh, it took a bit of time. I had to kinda had to prove myself then I went to America. It wasn't just given to me, I had to go to America and stay in the cron- stay with a stay in the Cronk and train there and it wasn't until March of 06 that I made my debut.
0: So tell us about the, the first day of the Kronk Den. I mean, that is, it's it's a legendary place. It's a, it's a kind of mystical, mythical place almost, a bit like a kind of boxing camelot where all these warriors are, are bred and, and perform. And you would have gone there with a kind of cloak of credibility that came from Emmanuel, but... First day in that place. Surely you walk in, everybody looks at you. Nobody cares what you've done. Nobody cares who you are. The fact that you're there with him might even make it worse because they might think, "All right, you're Andy Lee. What have you got?" And exactly. you need well, to show them straight away. No second who, chances your for a first is. impression. They, just,
2: they wouldn't care about your name or reputation. And if you're coming in with a manual, you have got a target on your back, kind of a thing, you know, or on your chin. <laughs> and uh, like it was, it was a complete setup. And I've told the story a few times now, but like we were in Emmanuel's house. I just arrived that day and uh, the day before, and Emmanuel said, "Do you want to go down to the gym and have a look at it and just do a little shakeout?" You know, and I was like, "Yeah." So I didn't even bring any gear with me, but I, I, had, I had my um, gum shield in the bag anyway. So I go down there, and the crank like it was in the basement of this recreation center, big, big building downtown Detroit, rough, very rough area, and uh, um, you go down and. And the, you know the, door, the sign of the door. This door led to, to many to pain and f- fame and pain. Whatever. That's a famous saying on the door. But you go in there, as soon as you go in there, you hit by this wall of heat, and it's it, like it's stifling. It's unreal. Like you know, like a lot of gyms are hot, aren't they? You know, it is like it's unbelievably hot and humid in there. Because um, it was in the basement, all the heating pipes would run run over the like run through the ceiling. You know, they were kind of wired to the ceiling or the floor below underneath. And, like, that's where the heat came from. And, like, um... Obviously, you walk in there, it's... I was the only white guy in there. And, uh, everyone was training. And I was comfortable in the gym environment. And I kind of... And to be honest with you, I probably was looking, looking to prove myself a little bit. And, like, was kind of buzzing off it. But, uh... It would uh, probably intimidate a lot of people because as soon as you walk in, this guy called Bam, whose real name was uh, Arthur Longhorn, he was a cruiserweight contender. Well, he wasn't really a contender, maybe a journeyman, but he'd fought Ray Mercer and a few like that. He would take a fight at a week's notice and go on, but he used to call him King Bam because he'd wear a crown coming into the ring. (laughs) Anyway, this guy is a character. (laughs) And as soon as you walk in, though, he says he he had his jaw broken fighting and he never got a fix. so when he spoke, he spoke like this. And then you walk in the door, he's like, fresh meat, fresh meat, in your face, you know <laughs> fresh meat. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, my God. I just started laughing. Okay, so my, I, was, I was just warming up, blah, blah, shaking out shadow boxing, looking around, still feeling a bit like self-conscious, because, like, you know, you, everyone's watching you. And he says, "Oh, right, man, he says, all right, you're ready to spar? I said, are you ready to box? He said, I said, box? I said, what? Spar? He said, yeah, you're ready to box. I said, I've got no gear. He said, don't worry, we'll get you some gear, so. I got Ronald Hearns boots, Ron Hearns headgear and stuff, and then some gloves. <laughs> and uh puts me in there with K-9, who was 18 and 0 at the time, K-9 Cornelius Bundridge. And uh, he was like a real dog, you know, a gym, like a real tough guy in the gym would come forward. and like. So he did four, three or four rounds, and uh, yeah, did well, did well enough. And like, it was mad. It was definitely a setup in terms of... Put me and then tested me, but it was also set up in terms of enticing me, because when I was coming back to the corner in between rounds, Tom's hands was giving me instruction, you know, giving me the water and like, uh, then as soon as it over I did a couple of rounds on the pads of the manual and then uh, I knew then, this is where I need to be this is it, like this is where I need to be uh, A baptism it, of fire yeah.
0: <laughs> it, it carries a huge reputation that place, of course, you're, you're wearing a crunk t-shirt now and, and those famous colours, the the red and gold, if anybody saw that anywhere in the world, then that it's a big responsibility to to, to wear those colours and be part of that club, not just when you're in the ring, but in your everyday life, I'd imagine, that you, you have to maintain those standards. I mean, is that is, is it the kind of weighted of responsibility that, that could hang a bit heavy at times, or was it just something no. you were really proud of? Yeah,
2: something to be proud of, and kind of people are like, well, who's this guy? wearing like, Especially me walking around cron- walking around Detroit, like um, in any neighbourhood I'd walk around in, and I'd have a crown coat on, and immediate respect, you know, an immediate, like there'd be no like no one would mess with you not not in terms of that but it would give you like they would leave you pass by and like you know what I mean where uh, um, so it was kind of a protection as well you know and uh, like a man used to say, like a man used to say that like we'd turn up and we'd all have our cronk gear on and it kind of was like, like these are the A team you know kind of a thing that, that people are looking like who's the cronk fighters and yeah it was it's legendary isn't it you know Hey, everybody, this is Moto G Pete from the Nokomoto Motorcycle Podcast. Join us every week while we rate, review, ride, philosophize, and generally obsess over every single motorcycle make, model, and style that could possibly exist, plus news and racing. That's the Nokomoto Motorcycle Podcast for Moto1 Podcast Network Studios.
0: It's interesting, actually. I, I read your book last year, um, and uh, it's, it's a really good read. Anybody who hasn't hasn't got hold of it, you, you must, because um what I really like about it, um, is it paints a really interesting picture of the kind of nomadic existence of a professional fighter and and, and you both kinda of did the same thing in a way because you both moved thousands of miles away from home over to the USA, uh, did very well, made names for yourselves, which is a very difficult thing to do over there. But boxing's a really lonely sport. We hear that often. It's lonely enough. If you stay at home, fighters like their home comforts. They like to be around family. They might go away for camp, but they'll come home on weekends. Whereas you two just transplanted yourselves to the other side of the Atlantic, and that must have been that must have been very well, very difficult. We'll, you, you've chosen the hard road there. I know the lure of the cronk. How can you turn that down? But you know, boxing is not glamorous, and you're thousands of miles away from your family.
1: We, we spoke about this last night. We went for a shake check once we got back here, and uh, we we're saying how. You know, like I say, Andy. Andy took his way. He went over there to Detroit on his own, young man. And you know, I did similar things up and down. I was in Manchester a few times. You know, that wasn't so bad because it was Monday to Friday. But it, but even then, it was it, it was more than it is now because it was like, you know, there, was, there wasn't the WhatsApp or the Facebook or stuff like that. So it was different. And when I did go to, I to Los Angeles. You know, it was an eight-hour time difference. I was out there for eight weeks. I was staying in like a motel, and it's there were lonely days, long days, lonely days, and you know. That when you speak to people and who and you think, well, what's the hardest part of boxing? I think when I was probably an amateur, I used to think it was dieting. But I think once once you've tasted that loneliness when you've been away, that that's the dieting's easy. You, you realize that's just part and parcel of it. But um, no, the loneliness was definitely, and, and we spoke last night about it as well. You know, when you're in that situation, you're away from home, and there's no one there that you really feel. Cares too much. Do you know what I mean? Like, and you have a bad day in the gym, you maybe get the head punched up for inspiring, and you're a month out, and it's not quite clicking for you. You know, it's not you got to do a lot of soul-searching, builds, an awful lot of mental toughness and character, doesn't it? Yeah,
2: well, it's funny that we both did that, but I just remember, like, we didn't speak about this last night, but my brother was always with me, I and mean, your younger brother was always with Generally, you. Generally, yeah yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, so that, yeah. like, and that's the only kind of thing you have, that kind of, like, that little bit of home, and, like, you just know that they're there because they love you. That's it, you know, there's no, nothing else. That, you can't really say that 100% with, about everybody else that's no. in and around you, but... Yeah, it was, like, when I first went to Detroit, I just immersed myself in the culture, and I was a young man, it was so exciting to be with Emmanuel Stewart, you know, like, I, I so probably didn't, wasn't until, like, I was into my second year, or, and then, then, once all the kind of, the, the novelty of being there kind of wore off, and it just became my norm, My norm that, that's when it kind you of, kind of had those tough days, yeah. And it's, it would hit you on like it would hit you on a Sunday, you know, like because every other day you're busy, you're training, you got something to do, you kind of have something to think about. Then you'd be just round, you know, around half twelve on a Sunday, you're just sitting in the room on your own. <laughs> All the soccer's finished because you get the games early over there, you know. You'd be up early to watch watch the football, whatever it might be, and then you're just sitting there twiddling your thumbs and like like it is, you know, it's it's, it's yeah. uh, a lot it's, of like, solitude.
1: Yeah. yeah, it is. Yeah, and. But it's more. More, more more mercenaries I think in the American boxing scene I think generally you know here in the UK Ireland you box from you, you generally train with a good trainer where you're from usually that's the case or, or even if it's an hour up the road and you've known more, it's a smaller place isn't it everyone knows everyone to a degree But in a, in America like Andy says in land there bang you're in the gym you're in the ring sparring there's not much you, you're slung in a little bit and yeah. you know whoever comes out you know the strong is going to survive type yeah. thing as well there's a bit of that Direction. Over there,
2: I had it like I was with Emmanuel. It was, it was a different, you know, like in a way. I had like we had that kind of, fa- not yeah, father son kind of a thing, you know, and uh, like we had a, a really close relationship. So he did, I knew he genuinely cared about me. Um, like he, he yeah, we had we were very, very close, to me and Emmanuel, and um. But he would—he uh, had his obligations. He would get pulled left and right, and he had to make money, you know. And he wasn't making it with me at that stage. So sometimes that's—that's that's where the friction came. That's that. But that was on wasn't until later on. But um, for the most part, like I kind of felt that I had a little bit of home because the man took me into his house. I was living with him and with his nephew, and who who became one of my good friends. And so I had a little bit of little bit of like it wasn't that on my own, but. It's it's not Tom. It's not your family. That's it's it's a different kind of a feeling, you know.
0: Oh, with boxing, of course, you have to try and, uh, unlike other sports, you have to try and be the captain of your own ship and, and steer it as as best you can. But there are rocks everywhere. There are there are reefs everywhere. There are pirates everywhere, and it's very difficult to kind of get to the destination you want to you want to get to. So if we if we fast forward a bit um, to when you won your world title. A lot happened in between, obviously, and there would have been times where you would have wondered whether it was ever going to happen for you. You'd actually dip down in weight, I think, just before you got that Korobov fight. And it's a kind of classic boxing story because things weren't going your way. And then circumstances conspired for that fight to become available for you. And then you must have known, this is it now. This probably isn't going to come again. Vacant title against a good fighter in Korobov, who was a very good amateur, top-ranked fighter, been brought on quite slowly by them. Some, some, some would say, but he was the favourite in that fight. But that must have been in your head that this is it now. I have to win this fight.
2: Yeah, I knew that. It's like, like Matthew fought for the world title three times, but that's like you're probably one of I don't know how many. Like I'd say it's very rare that someone would get, you know, would keep putting themselves, like and not getting that opportunity but like putting yourself in the position to get you know to have that to have that chance and then and to go through like once you like from like like I nearly walked away after the chavez loss, and then I just knew that wasn't I didn't do myself justice and that i wasn't there was a lot left in me, and I knew that i needed i knew probably then that I needed change if I was honest but uh, shortly after Emmanuel had become sick and then he passed away, and then I didn't know what to do, but i'd always admi- admired Adam. Uh, as like I, always, I didn't know much about him but I, from when I watched him he seemed very good in the corner I like what he said in interviews I liked the way his fighters fought so I approached him and then anyway fast forward two 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 and a half years my career was like I had to promote in America and um, like I was living in Ireland and in England and there was nothing happening and fights were never really planned out there was no structure and I was fighting, like, Luda was basically just filling his obligation and his contract to give me fights. There was nothing, like, there's no plan, like, you're going to fight this guy, then this guy, then we're going to challenge or whatever. Um, so I went down to, like, middleweight just to try and shake things up, just to see what, what if I could make make some noise there, like, just, just to, like, uh, I don't know. Create options, or something. Yeah, suppose. that's all, yeah. Had a couple of fights, and then nothing happened. You know what I mean? Beat John Jackson, nothing was happening. And when you look back at it, when I look back now, I met, like, when I was... Putting the book together, and I was like detailing the dates of each fight. It's only like three or four months in between these fights, but in those three or four months, like I'm thinking, like I'm walking away from this because nothing's happening. You know, I'd like like in hindsight, it wasn't that long a period, you know. But, 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 <laughs> but it's an minute. eternity to was a fighter yeah. waiting for the next yeah. break, and the frustration and builds this when, up. Just when you know there's nothing planned, just like isn't it? When you know, like this could be seven months, this could be a year before I get a fight. So I don't know. So got that fight with. I don't know if you want to hear the details of how it came about, but, like, Billy Joe Saunders was number one. No. Quillen was the champion. Carbob was number one. Billy Joe Saunders was number two. I wasn't even in the ratings. So, Adam was watching the whole thing. And then, um, it's a long story. Rock Nation win the purse bid for Quillen to fight Car for Carbob to fight Quillen. But they're not even involved with either of them. But, because Al Heyman used to manage Beyonce, <laughs> Rock Nation wanted to, like, kind of uh, wipe, wipe their eye, you know, a little bit. So um, Quillen pulls out of the fight because Al Heyman wouldn't allow him to fight on a Rock Nation show, uh, vacates the belt. So then it's Karabov against Billy Joe Saunders. So Adam rings Frank Warren and he negotiated, look, let Andy, put Andy in the reins. So Frank Warren got me into six, put me at six. and said, let Andy fight for the title. And. If he wins he'll defend against Billy Joe. And I think Billy Joe saunders um, wanted to fight Chris Eubank. They were trying to organise that at the time. So it was kinda suited everybody. So lo and behold, I got this opportunity to fight Karabov. And like I knew that was it. Like I go th- I would I i would say yeah i'm quite religious i go to mass or i would go to mass maybe if not every week every couple of weeks at least and like i would never really pray for anything you know for myself or i'd always just just say thanks and then after this fight i was just, <laughs> I was just praying like just let me win this one please like that was the only <laughs> thing i've ever prayed for for myself just please just let me win this one just give me this one you know and it'll check like and it and it happens you know
0: Montel Jordan, new guests every week, compelling interviews that you want to hear. Check us out wherever you get podcasts. One Star Recruits. I remember watching it. I, I got up and, and watched it on Box Nation, and um, I had some money on you too, actually. And the reason I had the reason I did was because I think we might have covered it together. Korobov against Derek Edwards, I think it was. Um, a few fights before that, and Edwards kind of hurt him early, and then just never followed it up, and then just boxed through the rest of the rounds. And you just saw a little bit of a frailty there with Korobov. And, and as I mentioned, he was brought along quite slowly by top rank. Like I think it was a Yukazi, long time before he had a ten rounder. Like he
2: beat like that Ukazly, who's I don't know if he was champion now, but he went on to be champion. You know, like oh, he's a good fire. good fight, no yeah, yeah. doubt. But, I just but was other than that, that other than that, I could see yeah, a little. I don't know what it was, a little hesitance or some some little. There's something know. missing in his yeah. arm because he was yeah.
1: a top top drawer amateur. He was unbelievable, but he didn't translate across. No, score, did he? And even
2: maybe I don't know what it was. Had he had the top ranked deal before the Olympics in in '08? Because well, he lost to the eventual winner, but he didn't. He didn't medal at the Olympics. You know, even though he would won six world championships or something like he was. He was phenomenal. He was
1: the, the favourite going in. Yeah, yeah. Olympics, he was the best the,
2: best amateur in the world at that stage. Like, and then. I don't know. but I, I remember years ago like he he had a tough upbringing because his parents went to America years ago. He was just a kid. Um they left him in Russia. Um and you talking about loneliness and like he <laughs> he was in Russia and all his family were in, in in Florida. They went to America, but he decided to stay because he was in the Russian amateur system or they decided to leave him there. Whatever way it went. So he was basically staying in, and they couldn't go back to Russia because they had left at a time when, I'm not sure if they had the visas or what it was, but they were in America. We were training in, would have been 2007 in Florida, Vladimir Klitschko, and his parents were coming to the training camps, and they were saying, do you know my son? And I said, oh, I've heard so much about him, yeah. And he's in, back in Russia, and he'd been there since he was a kid, so. I don't know, that's, that's, what was I saying? <laughs> that's one of those tangents. But, but,
0: but um, with the fight itself, um, often athletes, uh, boxers, um, athletes in any sport get, get asked, you know, what were you thinking at a certain time? And it's always seemed to me that the whole point of relentless practice is so that when that moment comes, when those seconds come, you don't have to think about anything. You can just do it. And when you had him hurt and you were closing in and you're looking to put the finish together... Do you remember anything about that at all?
2: Yeah, I remember. I remember, like, well, I caught him with the punch, and I, like, I've always had this kind of, I don't know what, sixth sense where I'd hurt somebody, and I'd, I'd turn away, like, like the famous fights that I had with, like, or knockouts that I had with Jackson. Like, I'm walking away before he's hit the ground. Same with Carl Daniels. And there were some other ones that were, probably weren't on tape in when I fought in Around America, where you hit them, and you're walking away before, you just know instantly, even before you've landed, kind of, it's like, I don't know, it's, with boxing, when you're in that kind of flow, there's something like, you know, I was like, I don't know, I'm really going off now. But like, you know, it's it's been shown like um, when people study the brain and like neurons that the neuron fires before. So you've actually made before you've actually consciously made a decision, you've already had the, the decision's been made somewhere in your brain, and like in the in, when when you're boxing, you're in that flow and. And you do something like you'll you'll throw this combination or you'll do this head movement sequence or defence, whatever it is. And before you've thought about it, you've done it. You've done it, then you thought about it and you're away and then you think like, Did I just do it? Like sometimes you're like, Did I just do that? Oh you know, whoa, how do you know, it's just like well, this there's, there's moments in boxing when you can do when you get into it. and like you said, that's through repetition, repetition, repetition. That becomes an instinct. And uh, I'd hit him with that very Hook Karabov, I'd wheeled away, and then I realised he wasn't gone, he was kind of teetering on. And then I just ran into him and I just knew I wasn't gonna stop punching then. And I, I in my mind I was saying like Kenny this was where I was just saying, Please jump in, just jump in, jump in and <laughs> stop it. Just I was literally that's yeah, what I was yeah, saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like <clears throat> my hands were going I was punching as hard as I could and I was putting everything into every punch that was like bouncing off his head and in my head I'm saying, Just please jump in, please jump in, stop the fight, please jump in yeah, <laughs> yeah. As soon as he did I like uh, it, was, it was good. <laughs>
0: I mean, what what is the feeling though? You, you said that you you went to mass and you prayed, and yeah. and you know yeah. you wanted it so so much. So when it happens, and also because with with your background and being at the cronk and with Emmanuel Stewart, people thought from an early stage that this was your destiny. And it was nailed on. It was going to happen. Very very hard road. Was it was it jubilation or, or is it relief? Rel- is it relief? It's
2: just I would say satisfaction. You know, Jumped just off. yeah yeah Jumped. just satisfaction like. We were back in the dressing room after, and like my wife was, she was in te- obviously in tears and screaming and roaring and woo and all that. everybody was was like jumping up and down, and hugging. I would just sit set on the seat, just with the band, just like just just sitting there, just totally at peace and like just finally just saying, "This is thank God." Like you know, not, nothing will change this. So that and that was it. That 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 was it. Like just just having those little quiet moments by yourself when you're in the bathroom and like. Washing your face or brushing teeth, and saying like, "I'm world champion." You know, like just saying it to yourself, like I'm champion. I did it. I did it. Yeah, I'm champion of the world. Like, see this world, this big world here. I'm the champion of it. Like, it's just something stupid like that. You know, like it's mad. I didn't know there were like three other world champions. I was thinking I'm the champion. (laughs) Yeah, it is. It's it's like you know, like I could like I don't know what it's like. I know it's like how close you were, Matthew, to your like to win the world championship and. It's just I don't know. Like it's it's funny, isn't it? Like how yeah. like it's I don't
1: know how you rack, how you like rack that up in your mind or what like. I mean, I look back on mine and I think that the fight with Martinez was a great fight. You know, going into the the eleventh round, I was a round down on two of the cards, three up on one. I felt I was probably just behind. You know, I wasn't sure where it was that I went out. Thought need to take chances now in this round. Got caught, put down twice, but he pulled me out. You know, it was a good performance in a fight that I was a massive underdog. No one gave me a chance even of putting on that kind of a performance. So let's in terms of stocks and shares, my stock rose in defeat. But it was still a defeat and it was my second defeat in a row. And even though the stern fight, I felt I won the fight. And I think the, the vast majority of people felt I won the fight. I still didn't win the fight. And I remember th- training for the Alcine fight and he was coming off a win against Lemieux. So I knew, you know, this is a proper fight. It's an HBO fight on a, on a telecast. You don't just get gimmies on those fights. And, you know, I'm thinking, training for that fight, thinking, well, I've lost these last two. And let's say they weren't bad losses in terms of, you know, one, most people thought I won the fight against Sturm. And, and the Martinez fight, I performed better. It was a close fight than probably what people thought it was going to be. But nonetheless, I've lost two. I was 31, I think, or 30 years old. And I was thinking, you know, if I lose this fight, that's it, I, I just don't, and, I, and I'd moved around a lot, I'd been in, up and down in Manchester, I'd been over in America, I was back in Manchester, back over in, I was in LA, I was back to well, Manchester, back to New York, um, you know, Now we would had the gym in Spain, and I was just at the, you know, you've been pulled and dragged, and and through your own choices and decisions made, but you've been pulled and dragged all over the world, and I just thought, you know, if I lose this fight, that's probably it, I don't know where I'd, if I'd have the stomach to go through what it would need to go through to get back into title contention, and when I remember when I when I put Alcine down in the first round, when you was talking about you just didn't stop throwing punches and you thinking to the ref jump in and stop it, I was laughing because that's exactly how I felt when I had Alcine up against the ropes, had him down twice, and I had him up on the ropes, and it wasn't the most finesse of finishes, but I was just kept throwing and throwing, thinking you know, jumping and stopping. Like, this is it because if he survives this. Then it it probably got, it's, got,
2: it's got, yeah, I mean, I knew, if, like, I was down, I was down, I'd not, I hadn't won a round in the fight, that was a sixth round, and I knew, like, if I'd, they were going to, like, top
1: rank, top rank fire.
2: It was that was it, so, yeah.
1: You had your moment, and you were going to seize it with both hands, and you did.
0: As for the stern fight, uh, I, I agree, and everybody does agree that, that you should have got the decision that night. When you're standing in the middle of the ring at the end, and they're collating the scores, and you're waiting to see what is going to happen, whose hand is going to be raised. What are you thinking at that point? Were you thinking you would get it, or were you preparing yourself for the worst?
1: No, I, I, at that fight, I remember coming in. I remember, you, you remember certain parts of the fight, clearly. And I remember... But when you're waiting for the decision. Yeah, well, when the bell went, that was it. I just, you know, go, I remember going out to the last round, it was literally a case in my head, you just got to stay on your feet here. Yeah? You know what I mean? You've, you, you, you've pissed it. you know. But maybe it was close to what I was thinking. At that, at that, at that time, I thought... I'm, I'm well ahead here and everyone was telling me i was well ahead so when the bell went that was it i'm world champion you know and he was kind of looked he looked devastated in the corner you know and uh so we were jumping up everyone was, like me up on their shoulders and we were celebrating and cheering the crowd were going wild i had like about three or four hundred people in one block and they were they were louder than the other nineteen thousand. and i thought this is it This is, i've done it and then then things started taking a while for the scorecards to come about, you know, and things calmed down. And next thing, I, I remember uh, Paul Smith, who was kind of in my corner as well with, with Joe Gallagher. I remember him saying, you haven't got it. They've given it to him. I was like, what? And then, I said, He's sure? And he said, oh, I, oh, actually, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. And then so there was this bit of a commotion going on. And I was, and then I just got that horrible feeling in my stomach thinking, they're going to rub me here. They're going to rub me. You know, And but I, but I wasn't sure. Either, but I just got that. Did you have any of those fears there. going to pre- like prior to the fight? Um, do you know what? Everyone's so, a few people said to me, "Cause you started very quick, too quick.' And, and, and you know, obviously, he came on at, towards the end of the fight, and I was like, yeah, it's easy to say that now, but that was my plan. I wanted to get so far ahead on the cards because he's really a good kind of counterpoint, you talk up and then you go, I go, you go, I go type of thing. I thought he he won't knock me out. He hasn't got that kind of power, he's, he he just won't knock me out. I know he won't he hasn't got the power to hurt me. Um I need to get my nose in front, I need to get the judges looking at me, I need to start fast and I need to get well ahead on the cards and you know, I was in great shape for the fight of super fit. I thought even if he comes on strong, it won't be enough. It'll be too little too late. Um, So, you know, did I think, look, it's all, I suppose it was mentioned on a conference call during the week, what about decisions in Germany, but, I just wanted to win it so clearly that I couldn't get robbed. and I felt that I had done that. You know, I felt that I was beyond getting robbed. Who was who was in charge of your career? That's like who was my handling in your career at that stage? Brian Peters. Uh, Brian was was my manager at that time. Joe Gallagher like, was training me, uh, but I was uh, Brian you know, was managing me, but I was have, always
2: you had no promoter really. No, Brian. I, Brian, I, I, Brian, I had
1: really. no promoter. Yeah. There was no promoter at that stage. you cause... think
2: like? I know it's like, but choosing
1: of the, ju- the referees and that. So
2: was yeah, there, any, was mean, there any of that? Was there like, any, it was, like, like, was there any finesse in the, the judges? The referee, <laughs> so, in fairness,
1: was pretty good. I think it was Stan Crystalula, the South African yeah, good, guy. good ref, yeah. But there was um, the judges, I think the American judge gave it me, and then I don't, I don't know who the other two were, but it was, um, now I remember thinking, at the time going into the fight promotionally, I was a free agent, and I actually signed with Ludi Bella after oh, the right, fight. Yeah.
2: Well, that's like, you might not things worked out for
1: you yeah in in a
2: way like that you came to america then and you had those big fights you know
1: things happen the way they happen and um you know but but being robbed at the moment though andy you know like i never i mean from a career point of view the fact that it you know was on epics it was on american tv they all felt like i think they had me winning they had me winning the fight more than i had me winning the fight they had me winning it like 118 112 or something and uh Lou Flew was out there after the fight, signed the deal, got the Martinez fight, fought Golovkin, fought Alcine. You know, had, had four or five fights on HBO, got good money for the fights. Um, you know, so probably secures your yeah,
2: future. I'm oh, sorry, just to that, go back to your like my original question, like not winning the title, but you seem pretty happy. Like, you don't seem happy about, if I'm saying that you're at peace with it. You know, even yeah. though know, you were like, you were just, you know, a judge of the scorecard away from.
1: Yeah, rub, rub, from rubbed, the rubbed at that moment. And the new, do you know what I mean? Never, never got to feel that that feeling you said you felt in the change rooms. Everyone's crying, everyone's jumping around. Job done, box ticked, mission accomplished. Never got to feel that, and it was a shame because the the camp went brilliantly. I trained so hard, didn't get injured, enjoyed the week in Germany, the build up, and performed. You know, so then that icing on the cake, that box ticked, was and the new. You know, didn't get that, but. Hey, I, but, but, just, I yeah, but, I was but in... as, as time's gone on, or you, 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 I've um, digested it all, and I'm not like resentful or anything now. I, I'm just, I'm just happy and grateful of the journey. Yeah.
0: Well, as you say, things happen as they happen. One thing that never happened we never saw you two fight. And there were two others as well, Darren Barker and Martin Murray. Uh, Sky got you all round the table. What, and, John,
1: and John Duddy was... was yeah. me, the one time, there was a lot of talk with me, Andy, and John Duddy, when we were both... All three of us were boxing on RTE. But there was a good crop of you, wasn't there? And, and then there and was Andy Lee. Oh, sorry, Darren Barker and Martin Murray. And none and, of you
0: ever fought each other. I mean, you and Darren very nearly did. I was down at the Matrium gym a few weeks ago, and I saw the poster. It was there. It was, it yeah. was happening. And then it... It fell by well, that, fell that by f- the wayside. I f- mean, you boxed Darren in the amateurs. You beat Darren in the amateurs, didn't you? But mm. you had the four of you there. And, and now, as it, every kind of year that passes, it seems even more crazy that it didn't happen because the demand for that now would be huge. Well, well, if we
1: if that was now, we would be fighting each other because Eddie would have got would have had enough clout to probably force the issue with one of the sanctioning bodies to maybe get a vacant title. And the four of us would have just been in round robins and rematches and trilogies and on pay-per-view earning millions fighting each other. That's what would have happened. Yeah. But um, I think, you know, things changed. But at that time, it wasn't, you know, for, for us to get the money, we had to go to America and fight Gennady Golovkin and Sergio Martinez and, and these I people. I know, like,
2: now that we're, I'm retired and that we're I'm glad none of those fights happened because... Even though we all had our own paths and to, like the the moment in the career, that would still be the define moment. Those any of those fights that happened, that would still be the defining moment in our, especially me and Matthew, because that it wouldn't have been look like neither what you do after that or before that. That would have been, and the, someone had to lose. You know what I mean? Someone had to lose, and they would have to live with that. And that's that's it. Like so, you would always be second best in Ireland or uh, wherever it might be. So now looking back, I'm just I'm glad it didn't happen, and it was close to happening a few times, but. Um, if I'm honest, I feel like it wasn't until like towards the end of my career that I would have been ready for those fights, you know. Like, I was boxing and beating contenders, but those fights would have been different because it would have been a, not a personal issue, but it would have been home issue. It would have been a lot more involved in it. It would have been a lot more interest in it. And it would have been a lot more, I don't know. But so, like, when say like you and Darren were kind of coming towards the end, and I was just kind of coming into my peak, I think, you know. So it wouldn't have been, there was never a moment where. Maybe it was different for you guys, but where we were all like at a level where we were all in that peak. For me, I felt like I was a little bit looking back now. I was probably a little bit, but I wouldn't have felt it like then. But probably a little bit behind you guys in terms of my maturity. So like things happen for a reason, and that's that's it. Like now looking back, I'm just glad
1: we didn't yeah. uh, fight. You know, I remember the Barker one falling through because that was the one that, out of all the fights, that was one that actually got signed and that I trained for. And I remember. It was going to be the main event of the uh, Magnificent Seven pay-per-view card in Birmingham. And I went to... Uh, and I wasn't with Frank Warren at the time, but he won the purse bid. And um, I went out to LA. I was out there for, I think, seven or eight weeks. Came back two weeks before the fight. And the day after I got back, I got a phone call saying, you know, Barker's pulled out. He's done his hip. And I, and it was, like, really deflating because... Um, and then Frank rings me back then. and said, look, I can, I can get you... Uh, you can fight for the European title still and I'll pay you more money than you were going to get for the vacant title but you have to sign with me for at least another fight. So, we agreed that anyway but I remember I I fought a guy who was, uh, you know, a a Georgian guy who was 26-2 and I think, never heard of him Um, and it was just an anti-climax having been out in the wild card for that long, sparring with Kid Chocolate and all the, these other guys in great shape, really looking forward to putting on a big performance. I was fighting Barker. It was a huge fight, you know, at the time. And uh, it just felt very deflating and very anticlimactic. And then on, on the back of that, then I had the second fight, which was the return of the Magnificent Seven. I boxed a Spanish guy. Um, I came down to ringside, uh, down to Sky the week before to film ringside. Ended up getting catching a chest infection or, cold and the yeah chest infection on the way back on the train and, and I was going to pull out then the week of the fight because I was coughing up phlegm it was the week before christmas I was getting good money for the fight i'd seen this guy get stopped by sebastian zebik with a body shot and i just thought you know what i'll I'll stop this guy inside 4 or 5 rounds it won't be an issue and of course i didn't have <laughs> i didn't have any strength any power in me so even when i was hitting him they weren't hurting him and uh, it ended up being a real tough fight and i just about got through with the win but i think it was probably that unconvincing performance that got me the shot against Stern because he'd beaten Varane on points in the defence a couple of years before that. And then I got the shot. Uh, no, actually, that didn't come straight away. There was They called me up and said, what was my situation? But i just signed to fight um, uh, Winky Royce. So I was mandatory for... Yeah, got getting ahead of myself here. No, I was mandatory for Barker because he'd vacated uh, when he got injured that time in the September. Then... Mick Hennessy put in a massive bid even though he didn't have a TV contract and won the bid and I obviously had a bad history with Mick Hennessy and I thought I'm not sitting on the sidelines here getting messed around for a fight that's never going to happen he's got no TV contract he can't possibly pay that money so and at the time um, Golden Boy I'd have a very good got, gone on very well with Robert Diaz from Golden Boy and he said look um, Winky Wright's back wants to fight you know what about that fight so I I ended up doing that fight, you know. I, I signed with uh to fight uh Winky Wright. Went training for the fight. However many weeks, I think it was about four weeks out from the fight. About was going to fly out in a few, you uh, know, the week after to Vegas, and Winky Wright pulls out again. And I just, I was at the point where we were talking about it, and last night when we were, there was a couple of times where I was nearly starting to think maybe just just isn't for me, you know. I'm just getting bad luck after bad luck, and I was going to walk away, and then Golden Boy said, look. um that's that fight's done. But what about fighting co-feature to Ami Khan against Paul McCluskey on Sky Pay Per View? You know, you against core and Gavor, we we'll make it an eliminator. So I agreed to that, but hadn't signed the contract. So as the fight was getting close, now we're two weeks out, and this contract still hadn't been signed. There was a bit of the, there was a clause. They said one thing, and then there was a clause more or less going back on that, and that was a sticking point really. And uh, my solicitor was back and forth with them. And anyway, I remember training on the Friday. Uh, and I got a call from Carsten, which was from UFA Sports, which was Felix Sturm's guy, and he says to me, "Look, um, you know what about this fight?" And we'd spoken a few months earlier. I said, "Look, look, I'm, 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 I'm meant to be boxing in two weeks." I said, "I haven't signed the contract, but you know, it's agreed. I'm hoping to work this contract issue out now over the next couple of days." And he said, "Well, look, I'm in a position here to make you a solid offer, blah, blah, blah." So I said, "All right then." So it makes it. I said, "Well, look, okay, I'm happy with that." The money and everything. I said, but this basically has to be signed, sealed, and done by Monday morning. Otherwise, I have to forget about this and refocus on the Gavor fight. So it, it, it's chaotic, isn't <laughs> no, it? That's just sums up what you know, life is like sometimes. I'm, I'm still trying to watch my weight. Also thinking, you know, I'm hungry and I'm thirsty, and but I might not be boxing now in two weeks. <laughs> and then, we, you know, over the weekend. Brian Peters, myself, Tomas, Rowan, uh, my my lawyer David Becker, the four of us were on conference calls probably ten Talk times about over this. that That's weekend. Like the chaos and sleep. the stress, and yeah. then but I, I still could end up be fighting this guy before. Anyway, yeah. Monday then we got. the It was a call. good fighter. It was a good fighter. <laughs> yeah. It was, and I'm actually thinking the stand fight is probably an easier fight. Yeah. Well, there's not much in it, you know. So I ends up doing the. Uh, I end up got the got the got the deal done, and I remember going into the gym, and the Monday or was it the Tuesday, and I said to Joe, I said look, Joe. That sternfights fight's on, that's off. Like I said, so I'm just telling you so you know, but basically the phones are going to be hopping. So I turned my phone off, went to Spain for two weeks, but back that the phones were hopping. Like Paul Smith rang me and he said, uh, you know, Adam Smith had rang him, going, Paul, we're all trying to get hold of Macklin, everyone, what's going on? You know, will want to lever everyone again. And it, I ended up getting, it was quite funny because I ended up getting a solicitor's letter from some top. Lawyer in New York, and it was Golden Boy, Khan promotions because they were involved in it. Hatton promotions because they were doing the undercard. Sky Sports and a few other people all copied in on this email, you know, with a, with a legal letter. and And it was quite funny because Frank Warren actually got one because me and Frank had always had this kind of quirky relationship. I think people were just putting two and two together and getting twenty two and thought that Frank was in the background because the Sturm thing came out of nowhere. But that was a very kind of turning point in my career, really, because. Like I said, had the winky right pulled out again, I, I was starting to think, you know, I was just yeah. disappointment after disappointment and, and living away and being lonely and, you know, getting older and your friends are progressing in life and outside of boxing in, in, in life with partners and kids. And and I just thought, I don't feel I'm getting out what I'm putting into this. And maybe it's time the fru- for something The new. frustration
0: of it must be absolutely unreal. Just dis- listening to you talk about it, it reminds me of... Uh... Uh, A John Cleese line in it I don't know if you've you've seen it but he's having a day where everything's going wrong everything's going wrong and it's, it's, it's a big day and he's always within touching distance and turning it around but it just won't quite happen and at one point he just sinks to his knees in the middle of a muddied field and just says it's not the despair I can take the despair.
1: It's the hope I can't handle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, That's what it, That's a good one. I mean, that's a good analogy because it, your hope gets up, then the de- deflation, and the hope comes up, then the deflation, then you start dreaming, then the deflation. And that, but that was, I, I was at the end of my tether, I think, at that time. I think, I think, I, I, well, I, I know I was. I was at the end of my tether. I don't think I could have handled another disappointment. And, you know, I'd been a pro probably 10 years at that time. So it wasn't like I hadn't had a career. But, oh, yeah, I, you know, I I think if something hadn't if that hadn't come about, then I think I might have. I don't know if I could have handled another disappointment. But the Sturm fight, when it happened, it was a world title shot. It was a challenge. I was really looking forward to it. And I remember I remember consciously saying to myself, you know what? Enjoy this moment. Enjoy these next ten weeks. Every day. This is a world title shot now. Because there was times in my career because I'd had the last two hundred facing and Jamie Moore. You know, and I was and I was quite a big noise when I turned pro at eighteen. And I felt like I was. I always felt like I was behind where I should be. So I felt like I was catching up, catching up. But when the Stern fight happened, I remember thinking, don't be wishing this away now. Enjoy this. Take it all in. Enjoy the camp. And and I did, you know, and I enjoyed the week in Germany. I was de- devastated in the ring after the fight. But Brian Peters read out a piece in the press conference. He read what loads of things. I wasn't even on Twitter at that time. But he read off, you know, what Andre Ward and Al Bernstein and Lennox Lewis and all these people were saying... On Twitter, and I could see that it had been universally agreed that I would won the fight, and had been robbed. So there was a, a sense of satisfaction with that. And then the next day, like I say, three, or, I think three or four hundred that had come up. I think it was about four hundred come over from Ireland and Birmingham and, and wherever. Most of them stayed for the Sunday, and we we, we, we celebrated, you know. And it was a, it was a great weekend. But it but rubbed at that moment in the ring. But it was um, it was definitely um, an experience and a, and a, and a performance that kind of put two or three years on my career, you know, because at that point I was starting to get fed up with the disappointments, but that, that kind of excitement and, and performance and the doors it opened Definitely put, give me the extra three years to go on.
0: But overall, now just looking back at, and talking about it, and all these kinds of things you have to go through—never mind the training and, and, and the actual fighting and, and throwing and taking punches. Are you, uh, <laughs> are, you, are you are you are you glad to be out of it now? Are you glad yeah. to not have to have anything to do with any of that? And, and are you going to stay out of it, Andy? Do you think? Exactly.
2: Yeah, I am. I'm happy. I, um, I, I couldn't imagine myself getting no training, any, uh, no managing, nothing no, like that. Not nothing not for now, anyway. Uh, we, we spoke about it again last night, and um. Yeah, happy the way it went, and and just everything has its t- takes like runs its course, doesn't it? And that was that was that little time in my life, and I'd probably you know even now I look back and think that I actually do those things, you know, because it's so far removed from it somehow, you know, like I'm not in the gym, I'm not around boxing people. Because like so, I just I'm basically just a full time dad now. <laughs> that's completely different. It's not how I picture retirement. You know, changing nappies and uh, putting them down for naps. But it's <laughs> great. It's good, crack.
0: Yeah. I guess the the industry never changes to an extent, though, does it? I mean, you you'll see what other fighters are, are going through, reality. trying to yeah, negotiate different. their like, deals.
2: Like when you look at the guys who who watch, like maybe Charlie Edwards has had some of it, but you look at like Povazi and Nakoli. I don't know if Boasti will ever experience any of that. Maybe a collie will if things don't go well, like a year or two down the line. Charlie Edwards has had some of it because he's had a lot of chopping and changing, living away from home, and there were long periods when he wasn't getting fights. So he's kind of come through some of that. But it's just some fighters have that kind of life. And then there were guys who are journeymen and some guys who are getting, ro- like, you know, get, like really getting, getting, like,
1: taken advantage of. So. It's just the cost your career takes, isn't it? And when Charlie spoke in the fighter meeting before the last fight, I could completely identify with what he was saying mm-hmm. because, because I'd been on a similar you know, I could, I, I understood his frustration, I understood his indecision, his, his journey went for his training, it hasn't quite worked out, he's been lonely, and I, I kind of had a really strong feeling that he was going to put on a special performance because of it. Everything was coming together for him. But like, I, I don't.
2: know As fighters, you're never really satisfied as well. So sometimes you might like you like we're we're putting our trust into all the into these people to manage our careers and promote us and look after us. Um, but they're just doing their best as well. And sometimes you don't fully agree with them, and you give them a hard times. Like I'm not, I'm not saying that, but like uh, the fighter is probably the one who pays the biggest cost. But like, um. Like, even like I was saying, like, Buatzi there, he's a star on the rise. He's got a, he look, from the outside, he's got the perfect show. He's got a great, uh, probably the best promoter in boxing. He's got uh, Anthony Joshua looking after him as well. But I'm sure there'll be times when he feels, well, I should have got this fight or Why am I not fighting him or Like, so I think it's relative to everybody, but like, it depends what your tolerance is for like disappointment, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and it depends how much you really want it, you know? And I think some it?
1: more than others, everyone, because everyone's journey is different, you know? I, I, I can understand a lot with what Andy's journey because I, I, I had similarities myself. But then, you know, someone who just stayed in, who's from Manchester, stays in Manchester, trained with someone in Manchester, and had the one promoter his whole career, he'd probably not going kind to of really identify or understand because he hasn't been there. So, it's, he, from his point of view, he's always had the one trainer, the one promoter. He'll still have his disappointments and he'll still have the his aggravations and the hard conversations on the phone, no doubt. But I think the the, the going away, I think. Certainly feeling isolated. That that's a big one, isn't it? Yeah.
2: It is, but the thing and the thing is, you are a young man. You are only in your like for me, you are in your early twenties, and you are dealing with men who have been doing this for a long, long time and far more experienced than you are. And in life, not just in boxing, and then you kind of you kind of have to confront these people, you know. And it, it takes no, it takes courage. I wouldn't say it ta- I don't know what the word is, but like. Did I? You, you have to kind of change the dynamic because when you're coming in, you're a young guy. You're everything's great. Everyone's patting you on the back. You know, you think this, this is a great environment. This is a great world, and I want to be part of it. But then you come to a realization after a while. Like, no, that wasn't a good thing that you've done for me. Or you didn't look after me there. And then you had to kind of have to come to terms with that. And then eventually confront the person. And it's. It's it's not the easiest. You know what I mean? That's why you'd see a lot of young boxers or any boxers getting taken advantage of and getting you know, getting chewed up and spit out by boxing. So it teaches you to become a man as well as yeah, all that absolutely. stuff, you know? We
1: saying that, will not we? And, and um, I think on top of that as well, I think you come in bright-eyed, thinking everyone's your friend, everything's great. Then you've got to be careful when reality kicks in that you don't become over-sceptical or over-cynical because everyone's doing their... Everyone's got a point of view, and you've got to understand it from the manager's point of view. You've got to understand it from the private's point of view, from the TV. You're the fighter. Everyone's got their point of view on things. and But I think it's, it, for me anyway, coming where I am now, three years into retirement time and working in the sky, all those little ins and outs and disappointments and different things, I, I'm at complete peace with that now. Mate, I, mate, I don't, don't know if I was straight away when I retired, but I am now. And you realise it, it's, all, it's all part of the journey.
0: Well, that seems as good a place as any to leave it. Really interesting talking to you both. Always great, great fun. Um,
1: you
2: were very quiet, Andy. <laughs>
0: well, you know, I think, I think. Uh Enthusiasm, Macklin's taken, and, and the numbers are increasing all the time. I think really they want to hear, they want to hear from Matt, they want to hear from whoever we get on, and it's. I'm just here just to try and steer the ship and uh, uh, and keep the conversation going. And that was very, very easy to do with you two. So thanks very much for that. Shut up. Uh,
2: <laughs> thanks for having me on, lads. No, it's a pleasure. Thanks, absolutely
0: pleasure. Uh, and we'll be back next week. We're in Liverpool next week. Um, good bill up there. Liam Smith against Sam Eggington. Anthony Fowler against Scott Fitzgerald. That's a really, really interesting fight. Robbie Davis. Uh, and Joe Hughes for the European and British title fight. So we'll see who we can we can get our hands on up there. Uh, and yeah, thanks for listening. Um, tune in again next time.
2: Sports Social Podcast Network.